Hello, Andrew. Hi, Tim. We were talking about we're talking about food tonight. Yeah, if you, you were talking about it, I and was talking we about recording. Uh, that I have that and bad so habit. I said, Stop. We've got to start recording. So this. I remember seeing a really funny graph, just an X Y axis graph, and there's this line that was pretty steady, and there's a vertical mark, and then the line just cascades downhill. And the little caption, I think this was from the the uh, webcomic XKCD. And it said, the day I discovered that as an adult, I could make bacon anytime I wanted. <laughs> and, and there's a very real sense in which kids grow up, my kids grow up, I grew up eating what was put in front of me. And at a certain point, you branch out on your own and then you get to eat what you like that you can afford. And there are many, many hilariously terrible foods out there that you can afford as a broke college student. One of my favorites, I tell, I've told this story a number of times. One summer at IU, I was so broke. I was just unbelievably broke. I was subletting an apartment. I was working at the library, and I think I had less than $10. I was waiting for a paycheck at the end of the week. I was broke. And I stopped at the little village pantry convenience store at the corner of 3rd and Jordan and went inside to see what I could get. And I was... I looked at I looked at a can of spam and considered buying it, but it was too expensive. And so I bought the generic can next to it, which was Libby's potted meat food product. <laughs> I bought that and like a dollar fifty loaf of wheat bread and I walked back to my apartment. Oh my. And I put two pieces of toast in the toaster because I figured whatever was in this can, it'd probably be better if the bread was toasty and crunchy. (laughs) And I opened this can and it looked like cat food and it smelled like cat food. And I put some on my toast and I took a bite and then I just threw those two pieces of toast and the whole tin in the trash. Seriously? Oh, it was was awful. It was vile. Libby's potted meat food product was vile. (laughs) And I remember like I went up to the counter with my loaf of bread in this tin and the clerk just kind of looked at it, looked at me, kind of looked at it. And I think the clerk was probably thinking something like, I've been working here for five years. I've never seen anybody buy a tin of that. Like, <laughs> I think we've had that tin here since before I started working here. And so, yeah, you, you move out of the house. You start cooking for yourself. I became an enormous pasta fiend. I just ate absurd amounts of pasta. Pasta was cheap. I could cook it quick. It gave me lots of calories so that I could ride my bike all the time. But we live in a world where food is absolutely a battleground. And I was just listening to um, the story of Jonathan and the Philistines where, John, where Saul makes the entire army swear an oath that no one's going to eat. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan's not there at the time, doesn't hear it, doesn't take the oath, and later finds some wild honey and dips his staff in it, puts it to his mouth, and it, it, like it says, immediately his eyes were brightened. And food is such a powerful thing. It's not, it's not incidental. You have to have it. God provides it for us. And yet we live in a time when we have more food options and more food quarrels available to us than anybody's ever had in history. And our theology of food has not kept up. Yeah. When you said you wanted for us to talk about food, I mean, Doug Wilson years ago took this baby on and boy, it it got nasty. And pastors are just, well, not all pastors because one one of our closest relatives, their pastor, for a period of time was trying to turn the whole church into vegetarian. And she ended up confronting him about it in a sort of effective but sideways way. And so the issue of food, the divisiveness of food in home fellowship groups, at potlucks and everything, is something that pastors, unless they're foodies, unless they're scaredy cats, or unless they let their wife run amok with their children about sugar and all this stuff, it's a big, big, big spiritual issue that's divisive and schismatic. Mm-hmm. But I, the first thing I was thinking about is the last couple of weeks, I've been working really hard to find a way to buy Haberset Scrapple from Philadelphia mm. in bulk so I can have some anytime I want it in my freezer. 
And so, <laughs> and so the last time, so you know what Scrapple is? It's it's like ground up horns and yeah, and livers it's all the and, it's all the wrong and, stuff. And like yeah, yeah, it's like uh, belly button uh, dust lint, yeah. or lint or whatever you know. But yeah. I had it when I was growing up in Philly. And there are certain foods that are regional. And so I've been trying to get it because I love having some. And the best part is it can travel cross country and doesn't even need to be refrigerated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, it has to be frozen. And, <laughs> and so I've actually. That's because of the smell, not because. It's, no, no, it's, it's absolutely delicious. But anyhow, two nights ago or three nights ago, I forget, we were at a potluck. Or not a potluck. Yeah, it was a potluck celebration for Eleanor Rice and for Margaret's birthdays the same day. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jason and uh, Chen were hosting it, so a bunch of people were there. And I walked in and I looked at the table. Well, of course, Jason always brings the weirdest food. Well, he does. He <laughs> cooked two turkeys for that. Chen's food is just tremendous Chinese food, but it was a potluck, so everybody had brought. And it was so funny because David and Cal Canfield were there, and I process the divisiveness of food in many ways through Carol Canfield. Okay. I know that sounds strange. Um, we should describe to the listeners that David and Carol are in their probably mid to late seventies now. And, uh, they're, I think they would qualify as the oddest couple that we, any of us have ever known. You know, uh, David was the world's, uh, chief collector of vinyl. Uh, vinyl classical records, buys all over the world, makes trips all over the world, although he stopped doing that now. He sold his personal, a good portion of his own personal library of vinyl classical records, which, if I remember correctly, was 20,000 records to the Library of Congress. He put out the definitive uh, pricing guide every two or three years. And then Carol is um, an irrepressible, cheerful, hardworking lover of um, musicals, lover of music, piano player, picketer at the abortuary. What would you say about Carol? They're just delightful people. She's a character. Yeah, She's a one-off. And they're both just... David is the quintessential disembodied brain. And Carol is just busy living. And so the two of them together... But the reason I thought of them is they were there at the potluck, and here we had this table full of wonderful food, okay? Everybody had, had, had brought their best effort. So I sit down, and I'm right across from David and Carol, and I all of a sudden I remember Carol coming to me and telling me that Everybody in the church is, uh, what's the word that's used? Uh, uh, Gluten intolerant? No, 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 no. Uh, sinful. Uh, their gods are their bellies, but we have a gluttony. word for it. Yeah, everyone at church is a glutton. The sin of gluttony is everywhere in the church. And it is wrong for us to have potlucks because it just encourages people Overeating. to sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm looking at Carol. This was probably 10 or 15 years ago. And I just said to Carol, Carol, get a life. Are you serious? You're going to take away. Eat some coleslaw. Yeah, you're going to take away the people being able to sit and eat together and fellowship because you're concerned about the sin of gluttony? Get a life. We eat together because God's getting so, so you can imagine the conversation knowing Carol. But there's a backstory to it, which is that Carol has spent her life fighting against being heavy. And she had come to me several years before that, and she had said to me very sober after a Sunday morning worship in the door of the church as I'm greeting people, she said, Tim, would you please pray for me that I'll lose weight? And I looked at her, (laughs) and I love Carol. I looked at her, I said, no, I won't. And she looked like I just slapped her across the face. I must be an evil man to tell a woman that's asking me to to pray for her that she'll lose weight. Well, there's a backstory to that, which is that when we went from 
when we started uh, Church of the Good Shepherd, was its original name, now it's Trinity Reform. When we started it, at that time, there was this huge movement that went like a tsunami through churches across the country, and it was called Way Down. Have okay. you ever heard of that? I haven't. Well, Gwen Shamblin was the one that led it, and she was a heretic. But for some reason, all these women everywhere began to lose weight, and it was a spiritual approach. And so it just it went like wildfire through the church. And there was a couple of women that always hung together at the former church. So I didn't see them for a couple of months, and then I saw them. And one of those two women really looked awful. She had lost a lot of weight, but she didn't look healthy at all. Mm -hmm. And... I said to her, what in the world is, is wrong with you? Do you? Are you sick? And she just gave me the proudest look in the world, and she said, no, I've lost a lot of weight. And I said to her that she did not look good. Now, we come up to Carol, and I say, no, I won't pray for you to lose weight. And Carol's like, why? I said, Carol... I do not want you processing your spiritual condition through your weight. I said, Carol, do you realize there are three books that sell in America? Books on Lincoln, books on dogs. And weight loss books. And weight loss books. How is it that Christian women process their spirituality and their sanctification through losing weight? And I know people listening to this are going to think, oh, you don't understand what a spiritual battle it is. And I say, how come every woman fights that spiritual battle? It's like the principal spiritual battle of women. I blame Barbie. <laughs> well, maybe it is Barbie or Twiggy, <laughs> you know, the model. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that you brought this up. Very, very happy. So what do you have to say about it? So a, a smorgasbord of, of ideas are on the table. Uh, <clears throat> smor yeah. Oh, all right. Okay. A buffet, a to, buffet. Choose, to choose from. I suppose. A regular for, Ponderosa. Yes, yes, yes. Um, a, a few things off the top of my head. One of the first ones is uh, my wife has been out of town yesterday and today. She's got the kids. She's off at her uh, brother and sister-in-law's, uh, which means that last night for dinner, I cooked myself two steaks. Two two steaks and then for breakfast this morning i cooked myself a steak no and yes and then for dinner this evening i'm going to go home and cook a steak just because i can no it's funny i got a great deal on a six pack of steaks four, at kroger four steaks within a day and a half making up for lost time man <laughs> oh is that funny no so there's so I mean, five years ago, this was not a common thing, but it's become very popular now for a lot of men to talk about getting on a carnivore diet. It's, yeah. There's all these different diets, and there have been diets since forever, and most of them have been placebo. Some of them have, mm -hmm. they all have trade-offs in them, mm -hmm. but it's not bad to put good food in your body. There's no, there's no imperative that, all foods are equally nutritious. Of course they're not. Mm -hmm. Nutrition is good. Your body needs nutrients. You should take care of your body. So you should eat when you're hungry. You should eat things that your body needs. Uh, I, I remember the first time as a kid, I went over to a friend's house and their mom made us for snack um, peanut butter and marshmallow fluff sandwiches on white bread with the crusts trimmed off. And I was... <laughs> I was fascinated and appalled. <laughs> and it was delicious, but my oh, mom that's funny. My mom made us grind our own wheat berries. And my mom I I loved much of the food that I grew up with. There were definitely some things though that were just she was always experimenting with different things. I ate a mm -hmm. lot of weird preparations of tofu as a kid. I have a I have a deeply ambivalent relationship to tofu <laughs> now as an adult. But there are, there are foods that are fun. There are foods that are nutritious. There are foods that are 
just a comfort. There are certain things I was talking to a friend today. We blue cheese came up in conversation. Mm-hmm. And I love blue cheese. My dad loves blue cheese. I love blue cheese because my dad loves blue cheese. And Mm -hmm. I used to stay every Monday afternoon after school in high school. My great aunt lived just around the corner from my high school. And I always had music lessons Monday night up in the city. So I would go from school to her apartment and my dad would come from work and meet us there. And the three of us would have dinner every Monday night. And um, my great aunt knew that my dad loved blue cheese and triscuits. And then she found out that I liked blue cheese and triscuits. And so every week we went over, she'd have a little wedge of blue cheese and a box of triscuits. And I cannot to this day eat blue cheese and triscuits and not be instantly transported back there. It's, it's just immediate. And so comfort foods are comforting and there's real value in that. But we also do want to teach our children self-control. I have some kids who would eat themselves sick on candy. And that that has never been more available than today. A couple hundred years ago, sweet treats really were expensive and harder to get. And so we, we have astonishing opportunities to have out-of-season fresh fruits from all over the world at our fingertips. And also, you can order Twinkies by the pallet. Or Scrapple. Or Scrapple. You know, um, I've been reading in Matthew, and I was struck a couple days ago by this. Jesus said, uh, he says to the disciples, are you still, this is Matthew 15, beginning with verse 16, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? I'm sure that eliminated is the exact verb he used. Well, I could tell you in a second, but I'm not going to get waylaid. No, that's fine. Continue. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those define the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. And this is the mistake that Christians are making. I have found that it seems to me the less concerned I am with my own sanctification and sin the cleaner become my shirts and my pants and my hands and my hair and my bathroom and my car. I think that there is an inverse relationship, correlation, between the cult of cleanliness and spiritual cleanliness. I think that when you give all your attention to gluten, to sugar, to eating right, to the children's diet, to not, you know, walking into a potluck and... Free-range tofu. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. It's almost a certainty that you are not watching what your eyes look at and what you take pride in and how divisive you are at potlucks. Do Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's not that I want a diabetic to eat candy. Mm -hmm. It's not that I want somebody that has an allergy to peanuts to die. Yep. But can we all admit that those things are the exceptions? Yeah. We spend a lot of time cleaning the outside of the cup. Yeah. The vast majority of the concern about food today is hypocritical and stupid scientifically. It's just stupid. I remember... When Mary Lee and I first got married, we were in Madison. We were, you know, long hair. She had a pierced nose. I had a pierced ear, you know. And so typically, our small group was alternative people. Long hair, freaky people? Yeah, it wasn't. It was just alternative. It was probably today what you would call boho. You know, we weren't hippies, hippies. But it was a weird time. And we did have a home birth at that time. So I guess... I have to plead guilty to being... But not at home group. Yeah, yeah, not at home group. Anyhow, there was a couple in this group, and everybody there had good jobs or was getting his doctorate in English literature or she was a counselor of substance abuse. They were all serious people Mm -hmm. with serious lives. But this one couple 
were absolutely against any sugar. You don't realize how much you have to work to keep from having anything on your table. And they're eating, they would eat at our apartment. And, you know, you couldn't have ketchup. You couldn't have drinks. You had to remember not to. And then one day they invited us over to their house. And for some reason, when they invited us to their house, I went to the back porch. I don't know why. And I walked into the back porch and from floor to ceiling was stacked liters of um, sugarless soda pop. And I mean, something broke in me. You know, I just thought... I just took one, I oh, shook it up, and I walked inside, and I cracked the top. I'm, no! And of course, they argued that, you know, honey was okay, and fruit was okay. So apparently, it was refined sugar, you know? Yeah. And I know lots of people listening is going to get angry, but I remember being up in Wisconsin. And at that time, the American Heart Association and cancer and everything, they said, don't eat butter, eat margarine, right? And all the farmers were so disgusted. And we quickly learned never to serve margarine in the dairy lands of Wisconsin. Oh, no. No, no, uh-uh. no. And so ever since then, we've had butter. And you, I've lived long enough to be able to watch what the standards of eating by Cancer Society, American Heart Association, all these doctor recommendations. Flip-flop like a fish. And it's just back and forth. And well, no, well, yes. Well, no, well, yes, well, no. The spiritual principle is this. Jesus says that what goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated. And he says it's not what goes into the stomach, but it's what comes out of the heart and goes out of the mouth. Then in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, food is for the stomach, and And the stomach stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for him around. And this is what I see again and again among us, is that we like to have areas of our life that we can parade being disciplined over but who's going to parade being disciplined over immoral thoughts you know you can't talk about that in a ladies prayer group you know what i'm saying yeah and people need to realize you've got to stop giving your attention to the things that are the world's morality food is the world's morality it really is And if Christians and the world have the same moral standards and the same ethical concerns, the one thing you know for sure is that the world has not caught it from Christians. (laughs) It's Christians that have caught it from the world. That slope only slides one way. Yeah. So 1 Timothy 4 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose conscience is seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That doesn't mean that a steady diet of ho-hos isn't going to be bad for you, but it means it's completely permissible to receive with thanksgiving Something that many other people go, oh, well, I would never, I would never put that in my body. I would never. Well, fine. There was a guy that was real famous on television for going around and explaining the the importance of a healthy diet. And uh, I can't quite remember that guy's name. And if I remember correctly, he died in the middle of one of those interviews. Oh, he just died. Whoa. I don't know what to say about it because, you know, I'm about 50 pounds overweight. Most of my life I wasn't. Um, And I think a lot of my weight that I put on is a result of uh, eating ice cream at night before I go to bed. And all you have to do is put two or three pounds on a year. And so people can say, well, your God is your belly. And so they would like to get rid of what we're saying by saying, well, you're, you know, you're glutton, gluttony, yes. gluttony. 
And there are people who should deal with their weight as a spiritual issue. Yes. I, I, I'm not saying that's not true. I often will say to men that I notice at the age of 28 to 35 are just pouring on the pounds. And I regularly say to them, look, stop, stop, stop. Do not put on more weight. Don't. Because I think that's the key. I think the key is to not put on weight because it's so difficult to take weight off and yeah. to keep it off. I have seen relatives of mine go up and down and up and down their whole lives, and that's terrible for their health. It's yeah. just terrible. There was a famous exchange between George Bernard Shaw and G.K. Chesterton where Chesterton looked at Shaw and said, to, to look at you, one would think there was a famine in England. Shaw's response, because Shaw was famously pretty skinny and hard-bitten looking, and Shaw just quipped right back, to look at you, one would think you caused it. Because Chesterton was historically Huge. enormously fat. Yeah, he called himself yeah. a man of infinite vest. I have his autobiography I got in the used bookstore once, hardbound, beautiful copy. And it has about five or six pic full-page pictures in it. One of He's the pages. a large man. Yeah, one of the pictures is uh, Shaw and Chesterton and a whole bunch of intellectuals standing at a fence. And uh, the contrast between Shaw and Chesterton is quite Immense. remarkable. <laughs> yeah, those guys, those guys were remained friends for so long, and yet they just went at each other yep. tooth and dogs. nail yeah. every time. So another thing that came up as I was thinking about diet, thinking about food, is that food is a profound gift to give to people, cooking for people, having them into your home, mm -hmm. and not just ordering in a pizza, but taking the time to cook something for them and feed them is less and less common. It's extremely unusual for young people. We live in a college town. DoorDash and Grubhub and Uber Eats are everywhere. And people, young people getting together and making meals for each other is just not that common. That's one of the most culturally radical things we can teach young Christians mm -hmm. to do is feed the hungry. Mm. That doesn't just mean, you know, give, give sandwiches to panhandlers. Well, that's completely fine by all means. But people who are hungry for fellowship, who are hungry for connection, who are hungry to step out of the rat race of their social media life and their class schedule and their part-time job and everything else they're doing. And they just want to be with other people and be known, feed them. I was talking to two of my daughters who have teenagers and we were talking about the difficulties of friendships in high school mm. that you can very easily get sucked into friendships that are completely disrupt destructive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there, and this of course is true of children in the church that there are bad, bad kids in churches in high school. The parents have let them go to seed, and they're fully at seed in high school. And so we were talking about how to help, how to help them not simply get sucked into these cliques that are destructive. And I told them that I think one of the things that God blessed Mary Lee and me with was that we both grew up in homes where the table was never empty. Dad Taylor was always bringing people over. They always had people living with them. We always had people living with them, with us, in my parents' house. Mm -hmm. And it's just the food and the sitting around the table talking was such an integral. And so when our kids began to grow up, guess what? All the high school kids at the church wanted to come to our house. And I said to my daughters, what you want to do is have your house be the place that the high school kids want to come to. And that requires calories. And I said, one of the best ways to do it is feed them and feed them well. And so, yeah, I'm tracking with you. People don't know how to cook. And we're not talking about how to cook a meal to, that, it, that, that it, we're not talking about having them have to cook a meal that is um, Michelin star meal. Yeah, that's oppressive. So many Christians <laughs> when I was growing up would do that. They'd have you over for dinner, and it was such a such a production a production. 
that you realize it had nothing to do with you being there. It had to do with the wife of the house showing off her china, her her class. It really was a class statement, you know. And, uh, you know, it's funny. When I was growing up, this is, I don't know if it's okay if I tell you this, but my father was a superb cook. So was my brother, Nathan, who died years ago. And so we still use my dad's recipes. He had a, he had a salad dressing that's out of this world. He had a hot salad that's cut up peppers and onions and bacon and tomatoes and mixed together. It's, oh, it's an incredible hot salad, just incredible. But he would come home from work, and my mother loved to garden. She had perennials. She had she had uh, hybrid tea roses. We had a huge vegetable garden. She was always out in the yard. She was happiest out in the yard. And he'd come home. There was nothing even beginning to be prepared for dinner. Hmm. And so he would say, Mary, what are we going to have for dinner? Yell out the back door. And Mary, Mary Lou, what are we going to have? And so pretty soon they're both in the kitchen. And it's like, you know, because he's come home hungry. And now he's having to cook the meal. And I always, every every single night, I cleaned up the kitchen. And I always hated it when my mother hadn't started anything, because that meant he cooked. And, and he my, used two dishes used, for every ingredient. He used every <laughs> single pot and pan. And, and they'd sit there growling at each other. And you'd just get up tight because your mom and dad are... <laughs> and so you know what I never do ever, 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 ever is go in the kitchen until after the meal. I love cleaning the kitchen up. But I don't want to have anything to do with being in the kitchen before the cooking and everything, you know. And uh, I think it's a kick to know that after all the discussions of what makes kids able to learn, we find out that the best correlation of anything with kids getting good grades and going far in their education is that they sit with their family and have a meal together every day. Hmm with kids must be a coincidence well yeah yeah well it may be that they that they eat together because they're good students (laughs) you know know, who knows who knows whether the chicken or the egg came first yeah But, but i do think it's fascinating the correlation of having one meal together and doing well in your education and loving to learn so, yeah, I'm with you on this whole thing. I think that we need to stop declaring our morality. And I know every person listening, oh, that's not me. I I really do have problems with my intestines. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are people that do. I have several friends that really have serious problems. I know they do. But, I mean, I'm so sick of people talking about food and being foodies snobs whatever it is you know and it is divisive in the church can you address that well there's a couple ways that it's divisive and it it can be it can be a wave your flag build your team grow a faction it can be a way of snubbing other people when you're in their home or they're in your home um it can be a way of showing your superiority, your either your greater knowledge, your greater self-discipline. It can be, it can operate on a whole bunch of different levels. Um, it can, I vividly remember, I use that phrase a lot. I, I think, I think the reason I say that a lot is because you have I actually vivid, remember them very vividly. Yeah, And you have a vivid memory. <laughs> um, I did not have a lot of money growing up. My parents bought a lot of food from a co-op. We bought a lot of stuff in bulk. We had a lot of jarred and canned foods, a lot of dry goods stored on the pantry shelf. And my mom cooked most meals from scratch. We didn't buy a lot of prepackaged snacks or prepared foods. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got into an orchestra when I was in middle school. We had Saturday rehearsals, and the rehearsal space was in this building that was right next door to a Wendy's. And we'd always have a break for lunch, and all the kids from the orchestra would just plod next door to the Wendy's. And I usually had like a buck, two bucks, enough to get a 99 cent cheeseburger or two 99 cent cheeseburgers. And almost all of the other kids in this orchestra were from money. 
And they would walk in there and they'd be supersizing their, they'd get the, the fries and the triple cheeseburger and the big soda and all this stuff. And then I was, that meal was such a highlight of how different I was and how I was the odd one out of that entire group that I would every week, as soon as rehearsal ended for lunch break, I would skip out of there as fast as I could. I'd run over to Wendy's, I'd buy my cheeseburger, and I'd leave before they came in to get their food, and I'd go sit up behind the building and eat it because I just did not want to be there. It's mm. so sad to be the one person at the table mm. who doesn't even have to doesn't even bother getting a tray because you've just got one cheeseburger and you're going to eat it out of the wrapper. Mm-hmm. And they weren't trying to snub me. There wasn't any malice mm. in them. It was just impossible not to comment on, impossible not to notice. And my parents were not poor. We we never went hungry, but we also just didn't have a lot of disposable income. Mm. And my mom was extremely frugal. Uh, to this day, I have a complex about certain things. Like I never, ever, well, I don't go to the movies often, but I am principally opposed to buying overpriced snacks at the movie theater. Mm-hmm. I won't buy the bucket of popcorn. Mm-hmm. And my wife growing up, like that was a thing they did. They'd go to the movies, and if they ever went to the movies, they made a point of buying a bucket of popcorn mm-hmm. for the family to share. And so that's a very fond memory for her. And I just, I just won't do it. <laughs> and we, we took the kids to see the, uh, the film Boys in the Boat a few weeks ago. And we had listened to the audiobook on a car trip last year. And it's an amazing story. The book mm-hmm. is, the movie's excellent. There are certain things you can't understand until you see them. But the the book does a much better job of getting you inside the mind of the people in the story. And one of the big differences is most of the people who row crew come from money. Most of the schools that excel in crew, Columbia, like they, they're just moneyed schools. These are the scions of rich West and East Coast families. And the kids who made up the team that went on to win the 1936 Olympic gold, some of them were former loggers. They were They were broke. They were completely poor one of the kids who made the team just did the tryouts because if you got on the team you got free room and board and you could eat in the school cafeteria that was the whole reason he did it the way that food functions as a thing that can bring people together or it can just be a way of parading your wealth there were certain kinds of food and snacks and other things that i remember seeing um when i got to high school i had an allowance each week i did chores around the house but i had an allowance each week And that allowance was enough to buy me lunch at the cafeteria one day a week. So one day each week, I could pick whatever day, pizza day, whatever day I wanted, and spend my money on lunch at the cafeteria on a hot lunch that day. But the other four days, if I wanted lunch, I had to get up in the morning and bag my lunch. And that was so, that was actually healthful for me. Not the food part of it healthful, just the discipline of being able to buy prepared hot food is a treat. It's a blessing. It really is a blessing. But it doesn't need to be the norm. And nowadays, it's becoming more and more and more the norm. Now that you don't have to necessarily go out to a restaurant, you can just have food delivered to you all over the place. Wherever you are, you can have food delivered to you. And we fellowship alone. We're just eating our, eating our Grubhub, eating our Uber Eats, while we you know, have a sandwich in one hand and you're scrolling on TikTok on the other hand. And there's no fellowship there. But a good meal with good friends, there's nothing else like it. There's nothing else like it. Um, Our family does Friday night pizza night, and we watch a movie together as a family. I miss parts of those movies every week. Some some weeks I miss the whole movie. I have a hard time sitting through movies. But I love eating pizza with my kids. Uh, the The movie is not an attraction to me. But... Having pizza with my family is. I did introduce my kids to the joy of smuggling your own snacks into the movie theater against company <laughs> policy because that was completely how we rolled. Like yeah. you would, you would always have uh, you know a little container of Junior Mints or something in your pocket, and you sneak into the theater and you enjoy your snack because it was. It was funny. We were in the very back row of uh, cow. Or something hall at Butler. Okay. Huge, huge. Haven't been, venue. so not familiar. And we had the very highest row back at the center. Mm-hmm. And after intermission, this huge guy to our left 
had a box of popcorn, and it was a very serious part of the play. And there was a woman in the next row in front of us to our right three, and she had, uh, like, something that had candy wrapper that just crinkled like you wouldn't believe. (laughs) And it took the two of them 20 minutes. He's screwing around the bottom of his cardboard box for <laughs> and then chewing <laughs> and then she's like oh she just couldn't eat it i wish she would just take it out of the thing and it was just oh it was horrible so you're talking <laughs> that, about that that crinkling of plastic hard yeah, candy wrappers yeah, yeah. is is punishable by death at classical music concerts <laughs> And that's what it was. It was silent. Ooh. The entire theater was silent. It was so oh. heavy. Well, about food. Um, it's interesting. That's the same as Mary Lee's family and my family. Never did they ever have any snack food. Never had any pop. And so Mary Lee and I have never, ever had Anything having to do with snack food, never, ever have any soda pop. Never. Um, except once a year, Josh and Nisha Congra have come over and give me a big bag of Cheetos because they know I absolutely love Cheetos and I never buy them. Did you know that Josh collects soda? No, no. no. He, he, he always is look, he, he, he has a small collection of odd sodas. So this guy has his doctorate in, in classics. I just thought I'd mention yeah. that. So we, we were over at their house for dinner a couple He's weeks ago. He's an elder. And, um, you know, every once in a while, like Mountain Dew releases some weird, just like Blue Lagoon flavor, some <laughs> weird-tastic thing. And he always buys some of those. And just he just wants examples of the odd ones that are limited. Like they're limited production. You can't get them. And he, and, but he, they drink them. And he gradually uses them up. And he let each of my boys, if they wanted to, with my permission, pick out a soda from his collection and take it home. And each of my kids just picked something that just looked like toxic sludge. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sure it's delicious. It tastes like childhood. Uh, but, you know, my various kids have different different levels of pickiness, different levels of likes and dislikes for certain foods. Um, I have a couple kids who will eat anything you put in front of them, and I have a few others who just, there's always some resistance, no matter almost no matter what you serve. And it's a, it is a spiritual issue, not in the sense that the food is an object of an important spiritual distinction, but what First Timothy four says: receive with gratitude. I know. I, when you were talking about that, I was thinking: dare I say it in this podcast? But I am so tired of people with children who the children will not eat half the things that Mary Lee puts on the table yeah and then they'll leave piles of it on their plate now the flip side in that is i think it is a responsibility of parents to teach children how to properly portion their food and i i grew up always having to clean i was i was told to clean my plate and i don't i don't believe that's necessarily a good approach if you're full you should stop eating but I've often caught myself yeah, but the thing is, giving adult portions to a kid and then going, oh, of course she's not going to finish that. Well, I'm talking about kids that take their own. Okay. Okay. Take their own, try it, don't like it, leave it. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't understand that's rude. It's very rude to not take the food that is put on the table and eat it. It doesn't matter if you like it. It doesn't matter. The fact is your hostess has prepared that food, and it's not toxic. It's your taste buds. And uh, so parents today don't require their children to cultivate their ability to appreciate things at all. And even if that's not the case, even if it won't help them learn to like sharp cheese or, you know, shrimp or salad or whatever it is they don't like it's still wrong because it's impolite and people are going to say well who cares you know that's that's not our generation and i think you know they would they would flip it they would actually say it's extremely impolite for the host to expect 
that the guests will always eat what's put in front of them, even if they don't like it. They don't have to take much of it. Yeah. But these kids will sit at the table and say, I don't like that. that. That's what happens at our table. The children that come over say, I don't like that. And what that indicates is that they're allowed to do that at home. They wouldn't just come up with that when they're going out to eat as guests. Mm-hmm. And so their mother is clearly spoiling them by cooking for their preferences. And it's one of these, it's one of these aspects of child rearing that you should not do. You know, it's like mother does all the work and she doesn't require her children to clean up the kitchen. Remember, I told you, every night I cleaned up the entire table, kitchen, washed the dishes, did everything. Mm -hmm. And parents don't teach their kids. Those of you that are listening, do not have your morality be what you do and don't put in your mouth. Uh, I'm not talking about gluttons. All right. Do not think that your wife needs to lose weight and you'll find her more attractive. I remember confronting an adultery situation where the man just said, well, she's with her sitting at the table. Well, she's so fat. I just don't want, and God, I, I prayed about it and God said I could commit adultery. That's actually happened. And so we have to be very careful about food. It's, we have to be thankful for what's put in front of us. We have to stop making our morality like the world's. Um, And one other thing, for those of you, typically women, who have bulimia or anorexia or have food issues, I want you to realize that this is an issue of control. Yes, it's a disease, it's clinically, has a diagnosis, but so many times this control comes out with food because of other issues that you're not willing to think about or deal with. And so do try to be free of your desire to control parts of your life. Cutting is a similar thing. And so don't, I know for you, it's not an issue of morality. It's not divisive. It's just self-destructive. And so don't, Get help for that and and talk it through and look at issues of control in your life. Well, we should wrap. I had one more great story about gratitude. Uh, A month or so ago, I went to an Indiana Pacers basketball game. Never been before. Went with my kids um, and uh, and some of my my in-laws and brother-in-law. And just like at the movie theater, like, all the foods here are going to be, uh, it's all going to be super expensive. It's going to be like nachos and big soft pretzels, and it's all going to be junk, and it's going to be so expensive. But I just decided not to be a stick in the mud, mm-hmm. and at halftime, I went out. I dutifully got in line. I'm the dad with the money. I'm going to go get my kids some food. We're at a basketball game. We're not going to come to another NBA game probably for a long time, if ever, and I want them to enjoy this. I want them to have a good time. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be a stingy dad who won't buy them food at the game. So uh, I bought some nachos. They were expensive. I bought a soft pretzel. It was expensive. I got some cups of water because I'm me and got back to our seats and the kids ate the food and they were grateful and it was fine. And uh, the Pacers were getting thrashed. It was, uh, I think they got beat like 140 something to like 110. It was the other team... By the, by the end of the game, they were just running up the score. They were just running it up, running it up, running up. And a large amount of people in the crowd just were leaving. There's like eight, nine minutes left in the game. People are just getting up and leaving. And uh, as we're getting ready to leave, we're all getting our coats and things. I stayed with my kids till the end of the day. Till the end of the game, we paid for tickets. We drove to Indy. I want to be here when the buzzer ends. Like, I want to be here for the end of the game. I'm not going to leave early. And one of my sons discovered that the people in the row behind us <laughs> I know what's coming, I think. <laughs> had left a bunch of Chick-fil-A and we're gathering up our coats and things. And I start hearing these muffled rapper sounds. <laughs> and I look over and he is gratefully receiving uh, a variety of like waffle fries and some other stuff that were in the bottom of this bag that was just sitting on the ground under this person's seat. And I was like, you know, OCD dad and me is like, ah, I was like, hey, hey, 
You're not going to finish that. Just go ahead and put that down. We're gonna... <laughs> <laughs> I remember that, I re- that instantaneous feeling of like hearing the rapper going, I didn't buy any food that had rappers and nobody else is around here. And then realizing I couldn't find that one son. And I look over and he's like kneeling down in the next aisle. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, I remember going out to pizza hut with mom Taylor when we were up in Wisconsin, we go over to portage to pizza hut and, one time we were sitting there waiting for our pizza to come out, and the table next to us got up and left, and they left about four pieces of pizza on their table. Mud, M- Mum Taylor got up, walked over to the table, picked up the pieces, brought them back to our table, and Mary Lee's like, Mom, what are you doing? And she said, well, the food was going to waste. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We've never forgotten that. She yeah. just she ate it, you know. It was good pizza, you know. What didn't have cooties on it, you know. Yeah, that's funny. I yeah, I I don't know what I would do if my son had done that. I probably would have laughed. I I did laugh. I I had a little bit of a <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> reaction yeah, myself yeah. because I would never. Taylor would never. You and Taylor are similar in your. Um, Cleanly. fastidious about yeah, under the freakish. seat stadium food well, it's not just that <laughs> we hope that's helpful to you who are listening and i'm sure that some of it maybe makes you angry but i tell people that when you get angry gk chesterton said he never considered he'd hit his mark unless he got a rebound and so if some of this has made you angry, that's probably where you need to think. Yep. It's not a complete comprehensive theology of food. No, Just no. a reexamining of places where we see either great opportunities for food and fellowship. And celebration and joy. Yeah. Hospitality. We had a debate at work, uh, oatmeal cream pies versus star crunches. Neither. <laughs> well, there is a correct answer to that question, but we'll save that for a later episode. Thank you, Tim. Great yep, to talk to you. Thank you, Andrew. Good night. Bye-bye. Out of Our Minds is brought to you by New Geneva Academy. NGA trains men for the work of ministry. For more information, go to newgenevaacademy.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you.